It's definitely one of those Sundays. Um, in the first service, my app crashed mid-sermon, so it's just one of those days. So stay tuned. Be interesting to see what happens the rest, the rest of the morning before you escape out of here. But as we emerge from the shadow of 2020, Lord willing, uh, our elders have asked that we study together the book of Daniel yeah, from the Old Testament of your Bibles. So if you'll find your way on your device or in your Bible to the, to the book of Daniel this morning, you'll need it. There'll be no slides on the screen this morning to help you. Um, so find your way there. And I think together, even in the first chapter this morning, you'll have a sense as to why our elders thought this book would be a good anchor for our souls this year. So as you're uh, finding your way there, let me pray briefly just for our time in the Word. Lord, have mercy upon us. Um, we don't want to just learn new things. We want to learn what you have, who you are and what it means to follow you. So help us by your Spirit now as your Word is taught and read and as we listen to it. Help us, Lord. Amen. All right. Um, the year 605 B.C., was Daniel's 2020 on steroids. That's when the book of Daniel starts, and it reads like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. So as we start the book of Daniel, let me just underscore for you, it's presented to us as history. Dates, places, names. This is stuff that happened. And it's presented to us uh, that way. And it transpires around the year 605 BC when the nation of Babylon besieged Jerusalem and carried off thousands of her people into captivity. Okay, that's the setting for the book of Daniel. Think for a moment what that would be like. Forcibly removed from your home and then forcibly taken out of your nation by an occupying force. Taken to a land that worshiped other gods that spoke another language. Away from family, away from friends, away from everything that is familiar, possibly even enslaved there. And imagine all this happening to you while you were in middle school. Hang on to that last thought. See, this great suffering and hardship pressed God's people then just like it does now. They were asking the questions, where's God in all of this? What is he about? Has he forgotten me? Um, and so they in 605 BC had a, had a year far beyond 2020 in suffering and hardship. And that's the setting for the book of Daniel. It is intended to bring hope to a hopeless people living in a really hard year. Um, Professor Dale Davis said, sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. And so the suffering of Daniel and his people um, is intended to bring the mercy of God all the way through history to us. Now the focus of the book narrows to the lives of four young men from the tribe of Judah who were taken captive. It starts in verse 3. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So the, the king of Babylon here is really um, kind of getting a bogo with his selection of the creme de la creme of Judah's young men. He is plundering Judah of her leadership and he is employing them as his own. Um, these four men, scholars believe, were likely as young as 14 years old. Think middle school when they were taken captive and selected. They were from the royal family, they were handsome, they were smart. And they would be educated at Babylon U for three years. It's more like reprogrammed at Babylon U. And it's not unlike, I imagine, what's happening right now in far northwest China amongst the Muslim Uyghur people. Um, I wish you could see the picture we had in the first service. They are taken into these re-education camps, China calls them. They are forbidden to pray to their God. They have their beards shaved, their hairs cut, their clothes confiscated, and daily they suffer under 11 hours of um, patriotic teaching to the Chinese government and are, and are forced to recite a Pledge of Allegiance to the Chinese leader on a daily basis. And that's going on now, right now. Uh, look it up when you get home, the Uyghur people in northwest China. But as it was happening in Babylon to these young Jewish men, boys really, um, similar ideas, right? And they were being trained in Babylonian culture and practices. Um, Professor Tremper Longman describes what their education would have been like. Um, the required courses that Daniel and his three friends would have taken extolled gods they would have considered false gods. These myths and epics would have been blasphemous, attributing creation and the flood not to their god, Yahweh, but rather to other gods. This part of the curriculum pales in significance to the major part of their training, divination. Babylonian wise men would be trained in the techniques of all types of divination. Perhaps the best attested type of divination of the day was the inter interpretation of the internal organs of sheep, especially the liver. He says, we have extensive literature on this subject as well as clay models of livers that help diviners understand the significance of the texture, color, and shape of various parts of the organ. The study of the stars, we would call it astrology, was also another mean of their training and, and discerning future events. Um, now, on top of all of that pagan training they were receiving, their Hebrew names that honored their god Yahweh would be stripped from them and replaced with names that honored the Babylonian gods. An example, Azariah. That name means Yahweh is my helper. It was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of the god Nego, one of the Babylonian gods in all likelihood. 
See, they are, they are to be systematically reprogrammed from their Jewish faith and culture to that of the Babylonians. And, and you thought peer pressure was bad in middle school here, right? Um, they are being pressed in every way to deny their identity as worshipers of the one true God and embrace the gods of Babylon. Where is God in all of this sorrow? Well, the first chapter of Daniel tells us he is being sovereign, he is being faithful, he is bringing hope, and he is reigning supreme. Let me, let me show you how that plays out in this first chapter. Um, sovereign. How, how is God being sovereign by letting his people be taken captive? Right? How, how is that ruling? Um, look, look carefully in your Bibles again at verse 2. It's a pivotal verse. It starts this way. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Um, the Lord gave. So this captivity is Yahweh's doing, right? He engineered it. God is sovereignly moving nations about like pieces on a chessboard to bring about Babylon's victory over his own people of the tribe of Judah. And Daniel's making a point here. The unthwartable rule of God is on display in the book of Daniel from the very first verses. Verse 2. And of course, that begs the question, why? Why would God cause this to happen to his own people? How is letting your people be taken captive by a pagan nation being a faithful God? And, and the answer is, it's because God is faithfully keeping his word. Um, this is the fulfillment, many scholars believe, of a previous prophecy that was made by the uh, prophet Isaiah. In um, 2 Kings 20, it, it reads like this, starting in verse 16, if you're chasing me. Um, Isaiah said to King Hezekiah of God's people, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Okay, this has not happened yet. It's a future prophecy. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. So some royals will be taken in captivity, he's saying. And he says, he says there'll be eunuchs, which has caused speculation by some scholars to say that not only they submitted the education and, and uh, such, but and renaming, but they were also were made eunuchs, um, which mercifully, that's very un, uncertain. Um, but more broadly here, this is a prediction of the captivity of God's people because of their unfaithfulness. And God here is being faithful to his own words. He is sovereignly bringing it about. But, but in chapter one, he is also bringing hope to his suffering people. The book of Daniel brings hope to people who suffer. And, and it, you talk about begging the question, if God is faithfully and sovereignly bringing judgment on his own people, how is that an encouragement to hope in him? Well, it's because the promise of judgment is not the only promise God is being faithful to. Um, listen to 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 1. It's a famous portion of the book of Deuteronomy where God lists a bunch of promises that will, blessings that will come to God's people if they obey him and curses that will come to them if they disobey him. This is a, a portion of that cursing part. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, or rather, this comes from the blessing, excuse me, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And one uh, scholar put it this way, if the Lord is so diligent over his threats of judgment, surely he will treat his assurances of grace with the same exacting care. So we're gonna see, in fact, we're already seeing in the life of Daniel and company here, God's faithfulness to care for and be with his people even in the hardest and most suffering of times. This book is really a book about Daniel's God, much more than it is about Daniel, as great as his example is. Okay. The unchanging character of our God is on display so that the supreme sovereignty and faithfulness of our God will inspire you and me to be faithful to him, even in the 2020s of our lives, okay, whenever they happen to come. This is just what Daniel is about to do. Look, look at verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And as we'll see, instead, he requested vegetables and water. So this is a curious stand to take. You accept pagan education, you accept pagan names, but you say no to the good food. Okay, what, what is that about? Why why is he drawing the line in the sand here? Um, and so some have said, well, it's keeping with the food laws of the Old Testament for the Jewish people. But there wasn't a food law, unlike the seminary, that prohibited wine, okay? So probably not a, an Old Testament prohibition, okay? Um, some have said it's because that food would have been offered to the Babylonian gods. Well. I imagine the vegetables were offered to the Babylonian gods too, so it may not be entirely that. It, it may just be a cumulative kind of effect of the encroachment of Babylonian ways on his soul. You add up the education and the culture and the names, and this may have been in Daniel's mind the point of no return, the kind of the tipping point where the Babylonian religion would have swallowed him up if he'd said yes to this. Now, it's interesting, our culture uses the same positive persuasions to woo us into its ways as well. Um, the comforts of this life, a nicer this, a better that. Um, Professor Ian Dugid says, isn't this how Satan still operates today? He may violently persecute believers in some parts of the world, yet often he works more effectively by seducing and deceiving us into forgetting God and thinking that our blessings come from somewhere else. It's not just the hard places that press our faith. Right? It's the richness of the king's food, um, the, his dainties, some of the older translations call it, the king's dainties. Right? 
So where will you draw a line in the sand and say no more to the enticements of our culture? Um, Are there limits to your luxury? Self-imposed ones for the purpose of protecting your soul from worshiping the golden calves of this age. Are there places where you can sense your hope and longing for satisfaction, shifting from the God of all comforts to the comforts themselves? Are you aware of that? Well, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. There's that little phrase again, right? God gave. God is doing this. Um, It kind of secretly reveals to us God's sovereign reign over this whole mess. Just as the captivity appears to come from King Nebuchadnezzar, but ultimately comes from God's hand, so now the favor and compassion that's shown to Daniel comes ultimately from God, not just from Daniel's winsomeness. God gave is a subtle revealing of his sovereign rule over kings and nations all the way down to the heart of this chief of the eunuchs. God is over all those things. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days, just 10 days, he says. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearances and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So it's a test, right? And this idea of testing, um, it's gonna come up again and again in the early chapters of Daniel. Um, It's a key idea. And the test is about more than which diet is healthier, right? It reveals something else about Daniel's God, um, that he is supreme over all other gods. The testing idea is the opening salvo in a competition of of sorts between Yahweh and the god Marduk of the Babylonians and all the other gods that they worship. The king and his minions, they act on behalf of their gods and Daniel on behalf of Yahweh. So down in verse 14, the steward listened to Daniel in this matter, tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So it's helpful to note these young men were not training to be warriors. Right? They were training to be scholars. And so the, the prototype Egyptian body type for scholars was different than that of warriors. It was on the chubby side, right? Um, think of your favorite seminary prof, not your favorite bodybuilder, okay? I had pictures. No, I didn't have I did not have pictures. So the idea is they they weren't more buff or even more slender after 10 days. Uh, They had put on a few pounds. They were, according to verse 15, fatter in flesh. They packed on a few pounds, eating nothing but vegetables and drinking nothing but water. I know some of you feel like that's how your diets work, right? But that's not how you would expect it to work, right? 
vegetables and water for 10 days and you gain weight? Um, why, would, why would Daniel suggest this diet if he's trying to put on a few pounds? What he may have been doing is simply making room for God to show himself supreme. He's making room for God to work, and he does. A diet of vegetables and water turns out to make them fatter than the king's rich food. He prevails in this little contest God does and brings hope to his suffering people. He still rules. He still reigns. See, your God wins. He always and ultimately prevails. He is faithful and he is sovereign and he is supreme. Verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, think an oral exam, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So did you notice how it started? Look look at the first words back in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. There it is again. God gave. He gave the nation of Israel into the hands of the king of Babylon. He gave Daniel favor and compassion of the eyes of the head of the eunuchs, and now he gives learning and skill in every matter these four guys studied. And so again, this is moving the focus from Daniel to Daniel's God. That might be a better title for the book, the book of Daniel's God. Again, the book isn't primarily about Daniel, as great an example as he is. It's about his God and ours and his good, faithful sovereignty over our every need. And again, you pick up on the contest idea here, right? Um, this time it's not about weight gain, but it's about knowledge. It's about, it's about GPA, right? And again, these now, after three years of training, these 17-year-olds, they outshine all the magicians and enchanters and PhDs throughout the entire kingdom of Babylon. Tenfold, it says. And this is another sliver of hope in their darkest hour and, and hours. Our God is greater. His ways are better. We should remain faithful to him even now, even now, even in the 2020s of our lives, just like Daniel did in his 605. If you're in middle and high school, this is you. This is you. You are being pressed by your culture and your society to deny your, your King Jesus just like they were. Maybe it's a little more subtle, but you know it. You've got friends who mock you. You've got teachers who don't believe, and they press you. And your God is with you, and you can stand. Now, in our day, as it was in Daniel's day, it's not always evident that God, our God, is prevailing, that he's ruling and that he is for his people, even us. Look again back at that verse 2 so befuddling to I'm sure to them the Lord God gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the transporting of these vessels of God from one temple to that of another God in Babylon, perhaps Marduk, their, their chief God, it's like trophies of war being put on display that declared the supremacy and victory of Marduk over Yahweh. Okay. Babylon's God over Israel's God. Professor Dale Davis says, in the ancient Near East, the fortunes of a God and a people were viewed together. That Judah's king and temple vessels were taken simply meant that the Lord was not able to protect them. If the people were losers, it meant the Lord was a loser. Much like the Olympics, he says. If an athlete representing a nation loses in an event, we may say his or her nation lost. We'd say Kenya lost or Germany lost or the USA lost. Same thing here. But clearly this loss by Yahweh, if we can call it that, is not due to his inability, right? We've seen him steer the destiny of entire nations. It's not inability, it's strategy. And this God is humbling himself to let lesser gods win in the eyes of their people. What kind of God submits to evil for the good of his people? Our God does, right? He's doing it here, and he does it in Jesus. Um, you remember that famous passage in Philippians 2 where it talks about the fact that Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our God is willing to humble himself and enter into his people's suffering for their good and for his ultimate victory on their behalf. Again, um, Professor Dale Davis says that the Lord knew how it would look when he gave his king, his people, and his temple utensils into Babylon's power. Pagans would be singing, praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow, which is why, he says, his is a humble sovereignty. Because he shows here that he is a God who wills to suffer shame if it might awaken his people to their danger. We see the same tendency in Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage but rather emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in Daniel 1, we can say that Yahweh is willing to defile himself if by doing so he can eventually purge his own people. Listen to the, how chapter one ends then. It's a curious little note. Look at verse 21 in your Bibles. All it says is, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's an odd little calendar marker at the end of the chapter. Why, why is that? Um, well, one scholar put it this way. He said, who was Cyrus? Well, he was the king of Persia who began reigning in 539 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar had already passed from the scene. He had died, as kings always seem to do. He says, what of Babylon? It fell. Fell to whom? To Cyrus and the Persians. He says, do you see? Mighty Babylon of verses 1 and 2 has fallen, but God's servant Daniel continues. It's another contest, right? This time it's about longevity. Same result. 
our God wins. He prevails over empires. And so even on the darkest of days amidst a year like 2020 or 605 BC, our God is supreme and he's faithful and he's sovereign over all things. So this Friday night, we got to open up our living room with some North Wakers who came over to, to hang out. Um, shameless plug for the North Wake living room that's being launched. You can sign up and our leaders are opening their homes every month just to hang out with, with y'all and get to know you better. It's great fun. One of the things we talked about was some of the hardships we faced in 2020. And uh, one of them put it this way, their suffering predated 2020 because of an accident that had happened to them. And they said, uh, we did 2020 before 2020 was cool, was what, what, what they said. And um, I know that some of you are suffering a sorrow that's far longer in place than just a year. And I want you to know that the first chapter of the book of Daniel, it's for you. It's especially for you. See, this is the unchanging truth you have to hang on to. He will be faithful to his people. He will be faithful to you. The question, of course, is will you be faithful to him? Even in the hard years. There's, a, there's an author, some of you probably read her, her name is Elizabeth Elliot. And she bore the sorrow of being widowed twice, first by her famous missionary husband, Jim Elliot, who was martyred, and then the passing of her second husband, theologian Addison Leach. And she tells about how helpful for her reciting the Apostles' Creed was to her as she mourned the loss of her second husband. She said, I use the creed to answer this question. What things have not changed even though my husband has died? And um, I try to recite the Apostles' Creed most days. It's part of my spiritual practice. And it does for me what Elizabeth Elliot found that it did for her. It reminds me of what hasn't changed. My God, he is still supreme and sovereign and faithful to his word and his people. He's worthy of my trust no matter what this day holds. And so I thought it'd be good for us to, to close our time together today by just reciting that creed as an expression of our faith. It's an ancient creed for millennia. Christians have recited it as the heartbeat of our faith. So let's stand, and if you would, let's recite it together just to remind ourselves what has not changed in the 2020s of our lives, okay? It's gonna be tricky because it's not on the screen. <laughs> and you guys probably have not memorized it. So how to do this, how to do this. How about, um, how about we'll go line by line and you repeat after me, okay? How's that sound? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This I truly believe. This I truly believe. Amen. Amen.